Welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock, your host. Uncle Jimmy's right here with me. We have a fantastic show planned for you on this Wednesday hump day. Dr. Boyce Watkins is going to join us. Friend of mine, friend of the program. Glad to have you on. We're going to talk about Deion Sanders. We're going to talk about reparations. We're going to talk about some issues specific to the black community. Jeff Bezos giving $100 million uh, to Van Jones to give to charity. Uh, but also because it's Wednesday, we're going to do some Tennessee Harmony where we have a discussion with two ministers, one black, one white, and we have a discussion about how we can promote racial harmony right here in America. Fantastic show planned for you today. Stick around. You want to enjoy the whole thing. But let's start with a fire. Deion Sanders says he was joking Tuesday when he ended an interview abruptly because a newspaper reporter repeatedly called him Deion. <laughs> if so, the NFL legend turned Jackson State University head coach cracked a bad joke at the SWAC football media day. He created the impression that the white reporter disrespected him because of his black race. The reporter, Nick Suss of Mississippi's Clarion Ledger newspaper, finds himself embroiled in a social media storm he did not create. Dion's joke has made Suss's job much more difficult. 24 hours ago, Suss begged people on Twitter to please stop tweeting about me. He knows he can't win this battle. A white man from Mississippi has little chance of surviving a racial conflict adjudicated via social media. Guy's got no shot. This is Suss's Mississippi burning nightmare. Only Dion can put out that fire. All right, here's what happened. Sanders specifically called for Nick Suss to ask him a question. Quote, let me get Nick. Let me get Nick. Nick is a good guy. Sanders began their exchange. Suss then responded, hey, Dion, just wondering if you could. And then Dion cut him off. And Dion said, hold on. Let's back up a little bit. You don't call Nick Saban, Nick. Don't call me Dion now. Suss jumps back in. I called Nick Saban, Nick. I called you Dion. Said it politely. Dion would not relent. No, you don't. No, you don't. That's a lie. If you call Nick Saban, Nick, you know you'll get cussed out on the spot. Don't do me like that. Treat me like Nick. Sanders smiled and then began to laugh. Suss responded, okay, Dion. And then he, Suss, smiled and began to laugh too. Sanders then stood up and walked out of the interview. Porters immediately tweeted about the incident. The Clarion Ledger wrote a news story covering the exchange. Six hours later, Sanders released a video showing his interaction with Suss and calling it, ending it with a video of Sanders dancing to the mid-2000s rap song, Walk It Out. Walk It Out. You don't got to take my word for any of this. Let's watch the whole thing so you know that I'm telling you the truth. They don't believe Nick Suss, you're up. Hey, Dion, I was just wondering if you could. Oh, hold on, let's back up a little bit. You don't call Nick Saban Nick. Don't call me Dion. Okay? I call Nick Saban Nick. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, you don't. That's a lie. If you, if you call Nick Nick, you know you get cussed out on the spot. So don't do that to me. Treat me like Nick. Okay, Dion. <laughs> um, All right. 
just uh now walk it out 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 now west i walk it out south i walk it out east i walk it out north i walk it out now as paul harvey would say for the rest of the, of the story on monday that's two days ago the clarion ledger published a story focusing on the domestic violence legal entanglements of Jackson State's top 2021 recruit, a four-star wide receiver named Quadarius Davis. He's the highest rated recruit in Jackson State football history. He originally committed to the University of Kansas. Kansas cut ties with Davis in late March when a friend of Davis's alleged victim posted two pictures of her in a hospital room allegedly recovering from her injuries. Dion is upset with the Clarion Ledger. Nick Suss is collateral damage of Dion's temper tantrum. Reporters, black and white, routinely call coaches by their first name. Jamel Hill, she don't mind race baiting. She even tweeted out, she covered Nick Saban and Tom Izzo at Michigan State and referred to them by their first name in interviews. Dion assassinated Suss's character because he's mad at Suss's employer, the Clarion Ledger. This is unchristian. Sanders is a believer. He's a flawed believer like the rest of us. He's certainly flawed like I am. I'm a huge Dion Sanders fan. I love the work he's doing and the attention he's bringing to historically black colleges and universities. Dion is well-intentioned. The road to hell and the road to Damascus are both paved with good intentions. In this instance, Dion needs to change course and head towards Damascus. He owes Suss an apology. He can't write this off as a joke gone bad. It's a bad joke that leaves Suss damaged. As black people, we waste too much energy interpreting the actions of white people and too little time evaluating our own. Mm. We foolishly believe their actions are more important than our actions. We've anointed them our gods. It's a mistake. Did he call me by my first name out of disrespect? Or because he's familiar with me? A couple of months ago, I'm gonna share this story, Jimmy. I'm getting slayed about this over Twitter. Mm. My best friend from high school, his son, an 18-year-old, called me Jason in a text message. I remember this story. We were communicating about his graduation gift. I corrected him and said, Aaron, call me Mr. Whitlock. He apologized and explained that he's so used to hearing his dad and mom talk about Jason, but that was all he could think to call me. He had his black, his whole family's black. Sometimes people get so familiar with you that it's natural for them to become informal. It happens to public figures. Reporters think they know the coaches they cover. When I worked in Kansas City, we called Marty Schottenheimer, Marty, and Roy Williams, Roy. I haven't lived in Kansas City in a decade. I call Andy Reid, Big Red, or I call him Andy. Dion knows all this. He's angry at the newspaper, so he gave in to what's popular on social media. Race bait. 
He fired an unfair shot at a harmless, well-intentioned reporter. The road to Damascus is just an apology away, Dion. Take it. That's a fire. <laughs> Jimmy, let's start here. I'm, getting, I'm taking heat for telling my boy's son, no, nah, man, call me Jason. And people are like, why you got to tell your, that's your best friend's son, he can't call you Jason? I'm like, no, nah, man, I'm like 40 years older than him. And uh, it's like, my best friend from high school, his name's Willie Clark. Right. I call his daddy, Mr. Clark. He's listed in my phone as Mr. Clark. As well he should be. <laughs> it's... It, it, am I wrong for wanting a kid that I'm giving stock to? <laughs> uh, I wouldn't. It wouldn't have mattered if you was giving him the right of way. It wouldn't matter what you're giving him. If you was giving him nothing, he still owes you the respect. What? Okay, let, let's put it like this. What happened when my son hadn't seen you in a couple years and walked up to you? My son's 11 years old and walked up to you and said, hey, what's up? He said, hey, how, how you doing, Jason? He didn't mean no harm by it, but what did I immediately do? What did I immediately do? You called him out. Hey, man. No, no, that's not Jason. That, that, that's Mr. Whitlock. That's Mr. Jason. Whatever you want to call it, but that's not Jason. And I immediately caught him. But, so I want to go back to my main point, though. People get familiar with coaches, these public figures. Hell, I, people may run up to you and be Uncle Jimmy. Uncle Jimmy, you're like, I ain't your uncle. I ain't. But again, people get comfortable and they get informal and we do it to coaches all the time. My main point here is, and I'm telling you, I'm a big Dion fan, supporter, love what he's doing. But, but I think he got caught up and what we're all getting caught up in is we interpret every engagement with white people through this racial lens and are they giving us respect are they being racist in their treatment of us? And, and, and we're just overanalyzing their actions. Yes or no? Yes. We're overanalyzing. Let me ask you this. What if the guy on the last, what if Sus, what if the last thing he would have said was, all right, prime time? <laughs> <laughs> what, would he, what would happen if he said, all right, prime time? You know what Dion would have said? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know who I is. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't don't. With Dion, I'm telling Dion's well intentioned. He, I think at the end he thought he was joking or thought it would come off as a joke. But to me, he's pissed off at the newspaper. Okay. Big time recruit coming in, and this dude is actual collateral damage. All right, let's roll out to the doctor. To Dr. Boyce. Yes, sir. I'm a big fan of Dr. Boyce. We don't agree yes, on everything, but I think Dr. Boyce comes from a very honest, good place. Yes, sir. Uh, he's, he's one of the most profound thinkers about economic solutions to black equality issues. Definitely. Uh, genuine, well-thought-out public intellectual. Dr. Boyce, uh, thank you for joining us today. And the first question I want to ask you, you think Dion was joking or do you think he's overanalyzing this guy's actions? I didn't think he was joking. Um, I felt like Dion was, uh, I, I felt some seriousness in his tone. I felt like he was really trying to, uh, uh, you know, ask for something from the guy and the guy didn't deliver. So Dion walked out. 
Um, I wouldn't have done that uh, because I think that I didn't get a sense that the guy was trying to be disrespectful or malicious in any way. Uh, but, you know, what, what's really interesting here is uh, you see some misalignment really on both sides. Uh, on one hand, if somebody asked me to call them Mr. Whatever, I'm, I'm going to do it just out of respect because that's what you asked me to do. Uh, you know, I'm not going to if you say don't call me Jason, uh, call me Mr. Whitlock. I'll be like, OK, fine. Obviously, he's sensitive, so I, I don't care. Um, you know, and if I insist on calling you Jason, I know that I'm picking a fight with you. Right. And uh, I don't know where that's going to go. Now, I think with Dion, uh, he's got to also think about how what battle he picked here. Right. Uh, so it, it feels like to me that now he's picked a battle that was unnecessary. Um, I, I, I do agree with you that uh, black people, we spend way too much time worrying about what white people think about us. If, if we would simply think highly of ourselves, then we wouldn't care if white people thought highly of us or not. And uh, and so with, with Dion, I, I have to admit, you know, that I, I smelled a little bit of ego in there. And uh, and I feel like ego will get you burned every time. Mm. Mm. That, but do you have I would sympathy is not the right word, but when you are the kind of phenom that Dion has been since childhood and the world has catered to you all the way from high school to college, the NFL, your broadcasting career, everywhere you go, people are throwing flowers at your feet. It mm. will play to your ego. And, and, and what, what I'll say is like Dion's in a tough spot because I do believe Dion's faith is sincere and he struggles with the world and the way he's been treated in the world. And so that gives me some sympathy into he's used to people being deferential to him. And then when they're not, when the newspaper challenges him in a recruit on Monday, he, he's, he, he hasn't, doesn't have the discipline yet, the, the coaching experience yet to handle that properly. Yeah. Um, you know, I tell you, fame, fame is a hell of a drug. You know, and um, and I, I cannot imagine, <laughs> uh, you know, be, being prime time and and kind of getting that treatment my whole life, and then suddenly you're kind of a regular guy. Because uh, the first thought that I had is when he said, "Well, you wouldn't say that to Nick Saban." Honestly, <laughs> I said, well, "But you're not Nick Saban yet, bro. You know, at least not as a coach. Now, as a player, you know, you did things that no human being has ever done, in my view. He's the greatest player, one of the greatest players of all time." But uh, but he's not Nick Saban. Right. Uh, he, he, I, I haven't seen anything at Jackson State that says he's even at that caliber. But I think at the same time, uh, now now you've kind of picked an interesting battle. Uh, now, let me ask you, this: did, did that article about the recruit come out in that newspaper after his interaction with the reporter? Or was it before? What, 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 who was reacting to who? the day before? The, the article okay. came out on Monday. The interaction happened on Tuesday. There you go. So he's pissed off. That's it. He, you know, and, and I and I and, and I get that. I get that. Now, mind you, you know, uh, that's what newspapers do. They report news. And uh, there are people that feel like you should uh, suppress things. You shouldn't talk about things and, and, and uh, you know, keep my name out your mouth, that type of thing. But no, they're not going to do that. Uh, if this young brother got into some situations he shouldn't have got into, um, uh, I believe in truth and fairness, you know, and and uh and I think that he should be heard. Uh, I think that the black male kind of gets painted in an unfair light in mainstream media in general, right? And which which is why, uh, which is why coaches like Sanders and and HBCUs are so important 
because we know how to differentiate. We can discern between a young man who is a, a serious danger to others versus a guy who just made a mistake. And uh, and I don't know if, uh, if if big white universities are as forgiving uh, in that context, uh, to really to their detriment, because they lose out on a lot of great. You think about like Randy Moss, for example, and, and, and what he went through uh, over smoking weed. You know, we, we know he wasn't a danger or anything like that. But that's different from, say, I don't know, Lawrence Phillips. You know, if you move back in Nebraska, that guy, you know. So I, I, I think that with Dion, um, I think that he his emotions probably got the best of him in that situation. Uh, it seems like. What happened with that report drove, uh, you know, the the discomfort of that interaction. So maybe Dion was looking for a fight, and he definitely got one. And so now going forward, what Dion is going to have to contend with is that uh, he doesn't have friends at that newspaper anymore. And we know media can be vicious. You know, when they have an agenda to destroy you or to attack you, uh, they they can be relentless with that. And I, I really think maybe Dion might want to reconsider his perspective, but not not so much bow down, but uh, just ask, you know, are you are you really offended when they call you by your first name or were you just kind of tripping that day? Uh, I don't think that he, he I can't imagine him not allowing anyone to use his first name. That just seems a little bit strange to me, to be honest with you. Boys, you said something that I so totally believe, and I think it's it's underrated as an issue and, and the public doesn't factor in fame is a drug. I talk about this all the time. I think it's the most powerful drug. I think it's the most addictive and debilitating drug. And I don't think we factor that in when we're listening to these very famous actors, rappers, singers, athletes who are trying to be public intellectuals. And I'm like, they're dealing with a famed drug addiction and everything that they say is intended to increase their fame and popularity and the ability to influence and pitch products to you. And again, that's why guys like yourself and other guys that I even disagree, Umar Johnson, other people, like the real public intellectuals that, uh, whether I agree with them or disagree, but that aren't dealing with the addiction of fame, serve us better than the famous people who are, I'm just telling I'd rather be on cocaine than on fame. And I, I say that in all seriousness. <laughs> well, you know, what, what I'll say, man, is that, um, well, let, let's, let's, let's be clear. My, in my view, even the public intellectuals are, can be addicted to the fame too, right? Uh, the clout and everything else. It, uh, no if, if you're out there, you know, if, if you're out there, there's there's going to come certain trappings with that money, whatever, you know, being liked and women, whatever it is that, that guys are into. And um, and I will say that um, that everything should be taken with a grain of salt. Uh, anything, any information you take in from anybody uh, should be taken in with a full understanding of the context within which that information is shared. So if a celebrity says something to me, um, you know, first of all, you got to understand that a basketball player or a football player they are not uh, typically trained intellectuals. You know, they're, they're as good at what I do as I am at what they do. Uh, you would not want me to go play against the Portland Trailblazers as your point guard. So why would you listen to, uh, you know, a Lakers player <laughs> do, you know, talk about the things that, that, that I'm an expert in? And I think that we lose that ability to differentiate because one of the challenges our community has, and studies show this, is that we worship celebrities. Uh, you know, companies, Nielsen, when Nielsen does mm. reports on how to sell products to black people, they pretty much say, look, just get a celebrity 
to endorse the product. If you get a celebrity to endorse the product, then they're going to buy it, even if it's an unhealthy product. That's a very dangerous place to be in. Uh, and so uh, overall, uh, I, I agree with you. And now, now, mind you, though, it's a society that kind of does this, right? We get sort of put in this weird box where uh, black men like me who uh, who uh, basically we, we, we compete with our minds, not with our bodies. W guys like us kind of get pushed to the side, you know, in exchange for the basketball player, the football player or the rapper. So when something significant happens in the black community, they're not turning to the people who understand what's going on. They're not turning to all the black lawyers and doctors and political scientists and analysts and social sociologists that are out here. They're going to go to Lil Wayne or somebody. Right. You know, and, and ask him, well, so what do you think about reparations? He don't know nothing about no reparations. He don't know nothing. He he don't he he can barely tell you what's in the cup that he's holding at that moment. You know, so to me, um, it's it's disrespectful, and and it's it's a kind of disrespect and dysfunction that uh that was created by other people. But we become used to that. We become accustomed to that. And one of the reasons that many of your scholars and intellectuals in the black community don't reach their fullest potential is because they're too busy trying to be down with and co-signing ignorant people. Who are who are just saying the most ridiculous things because they don't want to lose that popularity. And I've just personally said I'm I'm letting all that go. I'm not interested in any of that because that's not going to help our people move forward. Boys, let's move to a topic we disagree on. Uh, we're on opposite sides of the reparations debate. So I'm going to let you start. Take two three minutes. Tell me why reparations are a solution and uh, even a real possibility for black people here in America? Well, who knows? Maybe we're not as far apart as you might think, because I, I don't know how much of a possibility it is, because when you do the mathematics, uh, and Bob Johnson, I think, came up with a nice number of about 14 to $15 trillion, uh, that would be uh, a reasonable number to talk about when you talk about all the wealth that was stolen from black people. You know, the, the wealth gap and the, the fact that whites hold so much of the wealth this didn't happen because white people are smarter and harder working. Uh, it's because uh, so much wealth was taken from us, starting with our bodies all the way down to our assets. You know, uh, there there are people in my own family who had real assets. My grandfather uh, was um, uh, in a grocery store in 1921 in Alabama and a white man stepped on his wife's foot and uh, she had a couple words with him. And my grandfather had more than a couple words with the guy and uh, put a brick upside his head. Well, they lynched my grandfather and took all his property, right? So this is just my family. This is just one incident. This has happened thousands and thousands and thousands of times. And if America wants to move forward, you gotta make right by that. You gotta make that right. Uh, and so, uh, you know, as a result, obviously you look around, you go to black neighborhoods, you can clearly tell the difference. Uh, you see the economic apartheid all throughout America in, the, in my city of Chicago. You go to the north side, downtown, it's beautiful, clean, wonderful. Go to the south side, west side, everything's torn apart, dilapidated buildings, cracks in the sidewalk, everything, right? So with that said, something has to be done. Um, the question is what can be done and uh, what would be a solution? So I, I believe reparations are old, but I don't know if reparations would be the solution because Along with that oppression comes a lot of uh, psychological dysfunction that uh, where to the point where you it's easy to argue that in some cases uh, our people have become in, in some areas our worst enemies. 
Uh, we applaud the things that are killing us. We cheer for the things that are destroying us. So uh, if you did write those reparations checks and you sent it out to a bunch of people, uh, that would just be a stimulus plan for every, uh, you know, for Popeye's chicken. It would be a stimulus plan for all the, the malls, for Air Jordan, for all the products that we like to waste our money on because uh, you don't always you don't necessarily have the culture for prosperity. You have you have a, a culture that's built on that desperation that comes from oppression. So uh, so long story short, I will say this. Um uh, I believe the reparations are old because they're old. Uh, you cannot pretend like, you know, just because we don't think reparations will solve every problem, that does not mean that that money's not old. And it's a, it's an unfortunate type of paternalism that says, well, we know they're going to waste that money anyway, so we might as well not give it to them. That's what they used to say about college athletes and why they wouldn't pay them a fair wage, and even though they're making billions of dollars from them or whatever. Uh, but I do think that a reparations plan would, uh, should be something that involves uh, maybe some cash payments, but deeper than that, it, uh, it, it should involve specific uh, Marshall Plan level commitments uh, in the trillions to really go back and to address all the damage that has been done uh, throughout this country. You can't move forward without it uh, in, as, as a country, in, in my view. So I, so I think reparations are completely necessary. And so one of the things I would say that I truly believe, like as it relates to slavery, I think that white people have an argument like, whoo, man, five, six, seven hundred thousand of us sacrificed our lives in the Civil War to end slavery. In their view, man, that's that's a hell of a reparations. We nearly we went to war in this country and nearly dissolved this country in order to end slavery. And so they would say there was a part we paid some debt there. Now, as it relates to Jim Crow and the things that they did, because blacks immediately after the Civil War were experiencing great success and achieving uh, political and economic power. And uh, the KKK, racist people, came up with a game plan to stop that. And Jim Crow. Totally get that Jim Crow laws and segregation laws and all kinds of things were done to stop our advancement over the next 80 years, from 1880 all the way through the 60s or whatever. And I think that we have an argument that, hey man, that was wrong and there's another debt that needs to be paid. The problem is I think the people we had negotiating in the 1960s, and I go back to the Moynihan Report that, and, that LBJ had commissioned and uh, ended up rejecting. The Moynihan Report was a call for the U.S. government to uh, invest in the black family. Mm. It, it was a brilliant report that called for the investment in the black family. LBJ rejected it, and they went the great society. That's the deal we cut. Instead of calling on America to invest in our families, we went great society route, and it became welfare checks and a bunch of other stuff to displace the black man. We cut a bad deal, and we've been, di- and so what, what they basically, here's your reparations, welfare, the great society, Head Start programs, and all this other stuff, affirmative action, we're going to let you into colleges that you ain't even qualified for, we're going to blah, 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 we're going to do all these, we're gonna, and we're going to, and here's the big prize, the biggest prize that they offered, and black people just like caught the Holy Ghost and was like, oh my God, 
Integration. They gonna <laughs> let us integrate. Oh my God. My God. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. And we took you that deal. Come on. We now. took that deal. And and now we're sitting here in 2020 and I'm just like, hey, mm. I don't know if we get to renegotiate. And mm. and and now we're the deal we cut has us in such moral decay that if I were actually calling for reparations, it would all revolve around mental health and trying to rehabilitate our mind from the Willie Lynch letters that we are living out today. We have been taught to hate ourselves. Mm. And I do think that was done to us. We need some sort of mental rehabilitation that allows us to see us the way God sees us and owners of our own agency capable of taking care of ourselves, not always looking for Jeff Bezos or somebody to give us $100 million for some charity. I'm just, so that would be my rebuttal to reparations. You know what, that's- Your thoughts. I'll tell you, uh, I don't think, I mean, what you said was, to me, that didn't even feel like a rebuttal. That that, that sounded like a sharing of ideas, man. Um, because w- what you said is exactly right. We negotiated a terrible deal. Uh, the civil rights movement was one of the worst things that ever happened to black people. The civil rights leaders uh, sold out the black community, um, and black people are starting to figure that out. Uh, there are very few people from that movement that I, I've ever looked at as heroes. I just don't talk about it much publicly because you offend so many people because they've been brainwashed by the public school system to believe sure. that these individuals made progress for the community. But when you look at the data, when you look at the real data, uh, show me data that shows me that the black quality, the black quality of life has improved since 1968. Show me where uh, our children are being better educated. Um, about 100,000 kids every year graduate from high school and can't even read, can't even read at grade level. Uh, show me where uh, our wealth has improved as a result of, of that movement. Show me where our families are better off uh, since 1968. Our families are far worse off. And so it, it, at the end of the day, when I do a deep dive in my own mind of what happened during the civil rights movement, I saw a movement driven by Marxism, communism, far left ideologies to the point that black people somehow mistakenly believe that being black means that you are a Democrat or a leftist or a Marxist. Uh, when It's no coincidence that Black Lives Matter is run by trained Marxists. Uh, this is this is all. So so this was none of these movements. Most of these movements are not black movements. These are movements uh, by people that are fighting a different fight, uh, a lot like the Vietnam War. If you look at how the Vietnam War t- took v- the country, Vietnam chopped it in half, and half was communist, half was capitalist. And uh, you had brother fighting against brother, cousins fighting against cousins, uh, and, and ultimately the entire country gets destroyed because of it. That's pretty much what we have done, the mistake we have made as black people. Um, I argue that black people don't have to pick a side. I believe that black people have to recenter back on the family uh, you cannot have a strong community if you do not have families. And so ultimately, uh, at the end of the day, the whole negotiation process has to happen all over again. We need 1968 again to occur in 2021, where we as black people figure out, OK, what's the issue? What do we need? How do we get it? it starts with things like education, economics in uh, the family. Those three areas right there. If we fix that and fix that ourselves, then we can 
achieve quite a bit and we wouldn't even need a reparations check. So you use that term. Is it realistic to expect reparations? I don't think right now it's realistic to expect relevant, meaningful reparations. I, I think they might get some symbolism. That's what they get fed by all the political parties. Lots of symbolism. But uh, but it's not realistic, in my view, to expect them to, them to actually think about this. A government that's, what, $27 trillion in debt, you really think they're going to be prepared to drop a $15 trillion check on black people? The answer is no. So I, But I believe that if we figure out what the solution actually is and implement that in a really assertive way, we don't need that reparations check. We can pay reparations to ourselves. Mm. Boys, I need you to do me a favor. I need you to give me like 90 seconds to take care of some business. And then I want to come back and I want to talk about that man code that you and I and, and Curtis Schoon helped us develop. I want to talk about that. But before I go, I want to talk to you all about our great sponsor in Good Ranchers. Now, as you can tell, your boy likes to eat and I like to eat good. And <laughs> Good Ranchers helps me do that. Since they've joined our program here at Fearless, Good Ranchers has sent over some of the most amazing meat that I've eaten, that Uncle Jimmy and his family have eaten yes, and enjoyed. They have amazing steaks and chicken options for you to choose from, as well as pork and seafood. I'm trying to give up pork, but it's hard. That good ranchers pork is just too yeah. damn good. You'll never make uh, it into Muslims. <laughs> I'm just a big fan of their steaks. And when cooked at home, will be just as good as what you eat from a high-end steakhouse. And I like high-end steakhouses, but damn it, the steaks I've made are just as good. All of their food options can be ordered online and safely delivered right to your door. You can place one, uh, a one-time order or better yet, subscribe. Check out the Family Feast Bundle, which is filled with plenty of steak and chicken for the whole family. If you subscribe, you will get $20 off and free express shipping. Get with Good Ranchers today and support American farmers Go to GoodRanchers.com slash Fearless to get $20 off and free express shipping. That's GoodRanchers.com slash Fearless. Delicious. Welcome back to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. We're joined once again by Dr. Boyce Watkins. Uh, you can get uh, a lot of Dr. Boyce Watkins content, I believe, at BoyceWatkins.com. I suggest you follow him on Twitter. Uh, a brilliant public intellectual. We don't agree on everything, but I think one thing we do agree on as we bring Dr. Boyce back in is that I think black men need a code of conduct. And this is a conversation Boyce and I have been having over the past couple of months, and we came up with a suggested code of conduct and talked about being on code as black men because I think black women kind of have a code of conduct where they support each other. And I, I just think, well, let me, boys, why do you think we as black men need a code of conduct that we agree on and try to support? Black men need a code of conduct because I believe that we are the guardians of the community. Um, I had a, a good long conversation today with a friend of mine who's also a father who has daughters, a, a daughter like I have daughters. And and we were talking about uh, the way we engage our daughters in such a way where we don't just provide protection to them, but uh, the emotional security and validation that they're going to need so that they can uh, fend off 
men who are predatory in nature. Uh, and, and uh, you know, because um, uh, there's a lot of trauma that circulates in the community uh, when uh, it started. Really, I think some of it came from maybe the black exploitation era of portraying the black man as a pimp and a hustler and a liar and a thief and a terrible person and an abuser to women. And um, and so as black men, uh, you know, I, I learned a lot of my black male instructions from my father, uh, who taught me a lot about uh, what manhood looks like in terms of of of, of courage, um, in terms of accountability, really being extra solid for the people that depend on you, um, and um, and and just understanding what your responsibilities are that occur under your watch. And as a result uh, of, of you know lots of terrible things that have happened in the community, like the crack era and things like that, uh, the missing father has created a lot of males who've never learned how to be men. They, uh, many of them are 40-year-old juveniles uh, who never got that instruction book. So as a result, uh, unfortunately, they become almost a social version of the coronavirus where they are spreading uh, trauma and dysfunction all throughout the community. Uh, you know, so, so examples might be if you have a guy who has lots of children and doesn't take care of them because he thinks it's okay as a man to spend his life engaged in pleasure-seeking behavior. Uh, those individuals are more do more damage to the black community than the KKK ever could. Uh, if you talk about men who uh, who don't come through, uh, particularly for children or in the protection of women, uh, those individuals create uh, sort of this awkwardness where you start having women that have to take on the role of the man and sort of do things that uh, historically, traditionally, a man might do. Uh, and and so as a result of that, in my view, I think black men who are have not you know, who, who have not fallen into that trap, uh, fallen into that false culture. Uh, those individuals really have to stick together. And when I talk about being on code, I don't believe every black man is going to want to get on that code because codes of conduct require discipline. Uh, not everybody wants to be disciplined. Uh, uh, just like when you said women have a code of conduct. Well, some women do. Some women don't. Some women think anything goes. Um, and I think that for black folks, one of the things we have to understand is if you, you know, it, it, when you talk about things like liberalism, the reason liberalism, unfortunately, is very dangerous for black people is because liberalism kind of says anything goes. Uh, you know, you do what you you do, what feels good, what tastes good. You take, you know, whether it's drugs or sex or whatever, whatever life you want to live, you do. If you're not happy in your marriage, just get a divorce because then you can be happy and, you know, have all the sex you want and, you know, whatever. If you want to get fat, just eat, eat a bunch of food and and, you know, get obese and die of a heart attack and no one's going to say anything to you. And uh, and that sort of freedom of expression is is fine. I don't have any problem with it, but it doesn't work if you don't have a baseline code of conduct and ethics and behavior that will let you know when to draw the line. Right. Like if I'm free to eat whatever I want, I have to internally know when I need to stop eating or what I should not eat. Or if I'm free to have, you know, if I'm, for example, I'm, you know, as a person who's in the public eye, I've had opportunities to sleep with women if I wanted to. And if I don't know when to draw the line, then I'm going to end up putting myself in really bad situations. So I think black folks don't need more liberal thinking. I think that we need a little more conservative thinking because on that conservative side, that's when you get into uh, more Malcolm X nationalistic thinking of, of that involves structure, that involves um, standards, that involves responsibility. Uh, because going back to the point earlier you were making, we got to rebuild our families. Uh, if we don't do that, then we will always fail. Uh, everything that hates us, everything that wants to destroy us can easily pick us off one by one. It's hard to take out a family, but it's easy to take out an individual. 
And, and, and so just literally for the sake of our own survival, we need codes of conduct so we can build those structured um, uh, groups and families and communities that can withstand all, all the things that are stacked against us. So that's why I think a man code is so important. Boys, you hit it out of the park and you talked about some things that I actually talked about earlier today with Glenn Beck about this do what thou wilt attitude that we've adopted here in America and that the left is promoting. Dr. Boyd, I, I attack it and talk about this issue from a spiritual perspective. This do what thou wilt, it's satanic. It, it is from Aleister Crowley, it is satanic. The whole Nike, just do it all, this whole freedom, whatever you feel, just go for it. And the exact point that you made, I made this morning, talking about myself, because some of we were talking about Caitlyn Jenner, Bruce Jenner, and he feels like a woman, and so he, he, he feels like it, so he goes for it. And I'm like, hey man, I relate. I feel like eating fast food six times a day. But the Bible has explained to me, gluttony will kill you. There are ramifications for just doing whatever you feel. And the Bible is trying to explain to you, like, you, you can't just do what you want, do what you feel. There are consequences to that. And so Bruce Jenner has his struggles. He feels like a woman. I got my struggle. I feel like a Big Mac and a double cheeseburger most of the time. I have to show some discipline and say, hey man, that's not good for me. I can't do that. It's unsound. It will shorten my life. It will make my life more complicated. And again, oh, I feel like a woman, so let me get surgery and let me do this and let me do. And now we've set it off in a society where six-year-old kids are making decisions about what gender they are, and they can't even say what time they're gonna go to bed, what they're gonna eat for dinner. Nothing. But they can decide, oh, you know what? I don't like this thing between my legs. Let's change it. Are you Mm. kidding me? And so Dwayne Wade's son can do it. I don't want to personalize it, but I hear what you're saying. Uh, You know, I mean, I'm saying you can't see it happen. I did personalize with Kate Jones. So you're right, Uncle Jimmy. But let me, Boyce and I, for the most part, Curtis Schoon was part of the conversation. But Boyce and I, for the most part, came up with a code of conduct. And I, I want to share it with you all. And then, boys, we're going to let you go. You've been phenomenal. I hope that you have me on your show. I can't wait to bring you back on my show. You've been phenomenal. But uh, here's what we've come up with on code is. And we asked the question, are you man enough to stay on code? Mm-hmm. On code is public behavior and appearance that enhance the image of black men and promote a culture of self-reliance, self-responsibility, and self-respect. And, and I want to add before I go on to how and why we we should do this. But one of the I believe and I've argued and I've tr- been trying to explain to people, the black man is America's moral conscience. If you understand our role in this society, going all the way back to Richard Allen, to Frederick Douglass, to Booker T. Washington, to Malcolm X and Martin Luther King, we have been in our pursuit of freedom throughout America's history, has made America live up to its best ideals. We forced America to be more fair. We've been its moral conscious. And so when we get off code as black men, 
America falls into chaos. And I've been trying to explain to white folks out there, if, if you if you're bigoted and think you don't need us, wait till you get rid of us and see what happens over here in America. And because it's all and, and, and when you've allowed the liberals to, to place us in a immoral, degenerate culture and just made us run buck wild with this mental abuse and all that. Look what's happening in America when you destroy your moral conscience and don't celebrate the heterosexual Christian black man. So mm. here's how we do it. Here's how you stay on code. Prioritize education, wisdom, and respect for elders. Resolve disagreements respectfully and without resorting to violence. Embrace principles of family and community by protecting, providing for, and leading the children and family you create. Honor women, particularly black women, with honesty, fairness, and integrity. Pursue economic strength, unity, and independence. Never allow the ignorance and actions of others to dictate your actions and emotions. Choose logic over emotion. Why should we do this? The rebuilding of the black family and community starts with the rebuilding of the black man because we must dismantle the system that entices and financially rewards black people for maintaining a culture that encourages dependency, degeneracy, and death. Black boys need everyday heroes, not celebrity influencers. We owe it to our ancestors who sacrificed their lives for our dignity, humanity, and excellence to be recognized. America lacks a moral compass when black men are not on code. Mm. We're going to get people on code. Dr. Boyce, thank you so much. We're going to get to some thank harmony you, here in a second, Jim. Thank you, sir. We got uh, Pastor Bobby Harrington and Pastor uh, Damian Charlie okay. joining us. Ah! back to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock. It's now time to get to some harmony. My favorite time of the week. Pastor Bobby Harrington from right here in Nashville joining us. One of his associate pastors, Pastor Damian Charlie, also joining us from right here in Nashville. They both work at Harpeth Christian Church, although Damian's going to be leaving Nashville soon and going down to Jacksonville to be an associate pastor. This weekend, guys, uh, a friend sent me one of the greatest sermons I've ever experienced, seen uh, Dr. Tony Evans talked about what's going on in the world right now, all the chaos and destruction or just the chaos and just that the world is in and America is in particular. And he had a great explanation for it. He said that God was creating a disturbance because things are so out of line here that he basically wants to shake Christians up and get us to represent the kingdom that we're not doing that. He basically called us out and I thought it was a tremendous sermon and I wanted to go over some of the highlights from the sermon and hear from a couple of experts on their interpretation of what Tony Evans has said so that I've watched the service twice 
Uh, he gave it to the NRB, I think the National Religious Broadcasters. Yeah, yeah. broadcast, and he gave it a couple of weeks ago. But I, I wanted some additional clarity, and I'm so glad to have both of you guys here. And so I want to start with a clip that Tony gave talking about that God has created a disturbance. The author of Hebrews says that when God is ready to do something new, he creates a disturbance. And the reason he creates the disturbance, he says, is to shake created things, earthbound things, physical things, in order to reveal that which cannot be shaken. In other words, God shakes our physical human reality to get us spiritually back on point. I would like to suggest today that evangelicalism is off point. I would suggest to you today that evangelicalism has lost its way. Bobby, your reaction to those assertions, he's created a disturbance to get us back on point. Well, I think it's totally the truth. Anytime we go through difficulties, the great thing about difficulties is they can bring us back to God. And so his quote of that passage from Hebrews chapter 12 is, uh, I think, pretty helpful. Uh, let me read it to you. Hebrews 12, 26. Uh, God says this, Once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is the created order, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. And I think that's the way difficulties are, is they cause us to evaluate what, like, what's really eternal and what is God saying about all this. It's, it hit me so hard because I look at my own walk and it's, the chaos has been going on for me, particularly along racial lines. And Damien, I want to bring you into this. On, on that topic for the last seven, eight years. It's like what's been going on in terms of race in America has confused, baffled, frustrated, uh, frustrated me to a point that it's actually caught, it's like I gotta, the only source I can turn to at this point is God for an explanation. And that has helped me on my spiritual journey and I'm just wondering, Damien, as a black man and as someone, you know, in the ministry, have you felt that same like confusion about what's going on here in America about race? I'm just wondering, can you relate to that feeling that I have? Yeah, well, I think that the thing that comes to my mind is that his last point or his last statement where he said evangelicalism has lost its way is off point. And when I think of that, I, I, I do think of the scriptures of how Jesus dealt with the religious leaders of the day. Uh, specifically, I think of Matthew 23, where he was specifically pointing out that uh, they're very hypocritical in the way that they went about living their lives, although they, they pointed to everybody else about what they needed to change and what they needed to do. Um, and the premise of, of Dr. Evans' entire sermon was more so really helping, I think, pointing out to the church that there's some major issues and things we've got to take care of to really be 
the light to the world that that Christ was. And so. Um, so, yeah, that's those are my initial thoughts, because that, like I said, his last point about where evangelicalism is, is something that resonates with with inside of me in a big way. And so Tony ended up, Dr. Evans, Minister Evans ended up referencing the Apostle Paul mm-hmm. and said that Paul dealt with the issue of race. Let's hear from Tony Evans and then I'll get you guys reaction. When Paul dealt with the issue of race, in my favorite passage, Galatians 2.20, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I. It's Christ who lives in me, the life which I now live. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Everybody loves that verse, but we don't often tell the story that led to him giving the verse in the first place, which was the racism of Peter. Peter had found out that it was okay to eat pork chops with the Gentiles. But when his Jewish brethren showed up, he removed himself from fellowship with the Gentiles. And when Paul saw that he removed himself, Paul confronted him, but he didn't confront him with sociology. He didn't feel the need for critical race theory. He didn't feel the need for a a, a seminar entitled, Can We All Get Along? What he said was, Peter, you have embarrassed the truth of the gospel. Wait a minute. Peter, you have embarrassed the truth of the gospel. The truth of the gospel. That, and again, this is why I'm bringing you guys on, because when he said this, I immediately thought of the church and because I, I look at the church and I'm like, in this time, I've questioned, again, I'm not, I don't have the credibility to say it as a host, I got to say it, but I've thought like, hey man, the church is embarrassing <laughs> the truth of yeah. God. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, how did, when he's, when Tony Evans said that as a minister, is he right? Is he, how did it make you feel? Is he convicting you? What's going on at Harpeth or just interpret what Tony is saying and by using Paul? Well, first of all, I want to say I think he's right. And what I mean by that is that we have a heritage. If you look back in this country uh, where race has always been a, a dividing thing in the church, that the church has not been able to say to the world, hey, come and be like us, because in some ways, The church has been one of the worst perpetrators. In fact, Damien and I had a conversation about a year ago. And uh, one of the things that Damien, I don't know if you remember, we're in the student center, but you brought it up to me. What do we say to the world when the church is just as bad? And in in some cases, I would even argue worse than the world. I, I yeah. one of the things he talked about, I don't think we have the highlight, he talked about the Southern Baptist Convention Convention, and there's been a split. It sounds like that, that maybe I'm not educated. There's a National Baptist Convention now separate from the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, let me let me just uh, a lot of people don't know this, but most Protestant denominations divided either uh, before the Civil War or in the aftermath of the Civil War. And so the Southern Baptist denomination was created uh, as Southerners uh, who were rejecting 
the Northerners in terms of their, their, their denomination. It's true, most, most Protestant groups that happened. Mm-hmm. Damien, do you, is race the major dividing issue among churches, among Christians? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we know Dr. King said it famously that Sunday is the most segregated day of the week in America. And, uh, and although the spiritual principles that we follow out of the scriptures, because I think about how Paul goes on to say in Galatians, uh, Galatians three, where he says there is neither, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female for you're all one in Christ. That is a spiritual truth that we hold too dearly. And at the same time, we all have the physical realities of experiencing what it means to be black in America or or Asian or a different nationality and all that. And so for me, it's it's like, how can the church solve these problems? Because it's a there's a earth, the, uh, the kingdom that that we're striving to bring down here on earth in the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Uh we know that out of the scriptures, it talks about heaven being f- filled with many tongues, many different nationalities. But the realities of living in this physical world is that, you know, sin and selfishness divides. And so I think within the church, we're having to, to really wrestle out and, and figure that component out. And, and it just got to be honest, the church hadn't done a great job at that. Yeah. Just bottom line. Yeah. And and. So my interpretation of what you all are just talking about and what I heard from too many of us are trying to live in both worlds equally. And and we want to live in the secular world and do secular things. Jason Whitlock wanted to be a Christian and hang at strip clubs. It took me time to figure out like, no, 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 I I can't be a Christian and hang in in the strip club. If I want to represent the kingdom, I got to try to live in the kingdom seven days a week or I'm misrepresenting the kingdom. And that's why we have so much chaos. Yeah. Yeah. One of the things we talk about is the difference between being a cultural Christian and a biblical disciple. Mm. And the two are very different. Well, well, a cultural Christian is somebody who, you know, he likes church. He he likes Jesus. uh, He'll attend church. But he doesn't want so much religion that it's going to actually have to change his life because it's cultural more than it is being a devout disciple of Jesus who's really following what Scripture says on all these things. And we just, we just have to confess. I mean, it's been a problem uh, going back to, to New Testament times. There is a real natural tendency, especially when something gets popular, that all of a sudden it gets, uh, the agenda gets hijacked by people who, whose motives aren't 100% pure. And then to, to be really candid, a lot of times we are all influenced by our culture as well. And it's really easy to talk about that that's somebody out there, whereas it could be somebody right in here. All right, the next thing, this is where I really needed you all's help. He talked about the gospel, that it's narrow in content and broad in scope. And I need that explained to me, but let's listen to Tony Evans first. Far too many evangelicals have not understood that the gospel has a narrow content, but it has a broad scope. And race is a gospel issue. 
The unity of the church is a gospel issue. And it's a gospel issue saints need to know about. And we cannot dismiss it by calling on the content of the gospel that gets us to heaven while we skip of the scope of the gospel, which ought to change how we relate to one another on earth. So to help the church out, God has shaken up the culture and says, since the church can't get it together, since the church is using illegitimate diagnostic methodologies for determining our relationship, our fellowship, and our unity, then I'm going to so mess it up in the culture that you can no longer skip discussing the issue. And while we are debating about critical race theory and non-critical race theory, those of us who are biblical-centric ought to understand there should be a kingdom race theology. There ought to be a theology that trumps all of that. All of that. So, I watched this the first time I saw it. I rewound and watched it three or four times. Clarify me, help me, a narrow content, broad scope. What does he exactly mean by that? Yeah, in the New Testament, the gospel is focused on the person of Jesus and his death, burial, resurrection, and exaltation. So he's literally the king of kings right now. All right? That's narrow. What that means, though, is because he's the king of kings, is that he gets to be our king in every area of life. And whatever he says, we do. Wherever he leads, we go. Because he's our king, and that's broad. Your reaction, Dave? You know, my thoughts are, I, I think of uh, 1 Timothy 4, where Paul was talking to Timothy, and he actually says in verse 16, be diligent in these matters, give yourself wholly, meaning entirely to them, so that everyone may see your progress, watch your life and doctrine closely, persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And that's very important, because people want to see someone's life and their doctrine being lived out. And so if they're not matching up, then why, do, why would I even listen to you about any problems like, okay, the church saying that they have the solutions to racism. Let me walk in your church and see if, if you're really solving that problem by how the makeup of your church. You know, if you walk in and you don't see it, it's kind of like, why would I have to listen? Why would I want to listen to you or anything you have to say about solving the problem of racism when that's not even in your own fellowship? And so as he goes on to talk about the difference between the black and white church, I think the world is really tired. Specifically, I would talk about the American church. I don't know about the rest of the world, but in America, just the, they're tired of hearing just the constant blabbering that's going on. Because oftentimes people are not watching their life and doctrine and persevering in what the scriptures teach. So therefore, people are tuning them out. Mm. Mm. Uncle Jimmy, you got any early thoughts? Uh, no, I want them to keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to take a short break. I want you guys to hit youtube.com slash fearless with Jason Whitlock. Hit that subscribe and notifications button. When we come back, we're going to talk about idolatry. It's one of my favorite topics. It gets me in a lot of trouble. I, I, I have a question on that one. Yeah. All right, good. Because this is one of my favorite topics, and I thought Tony Evans knocked it out of the park. Back with more after this.
Welcome back to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. More Tennessee Harmony. Let's keep it rolling. Tony Evans, we've been talking about his sermon that he delivered a couple weeks ago about God shaking things up. One of my favorite points, or, or the favorite point of the sermon to me, was when he started talking about ideology. Idolatry. And it's, it's well, let's hear from Tony, and then I'll tell you my definition of idolatry and and. I'll see if these ministers agree with me or can correct me here. Here's Tony Evans. Whenever God created a shaking in scripture, it would always to be to attack idolatry. Idolatry is any noun, person, place, thing, or thought that you look to as your source, your governing body, your governance, the thing that you are looking to. Idolatry is the number one sin in the Bible from which all sins emanate because it is a rejection of the true God in favor of something or someone else. And so idolatry would be attacked. The Bible says when that happens, Romans 1, God abandons and that allows chaos to enter into the environment. What we have developed in America and even in American Christianity are American idols. Idols of popularity, idols of materialism, idols of racism. Idols of racism. Mm, that hit me so hard because this is what I think social media has enhanced and put on steroids. We look at these celebrity entertainers, singers, rappers, movie stars, athletes, LeBron James, these people with money and all these social media followers, they're above everybody else and we should listen to them. That's how I interpret idolatry. And I think we're looking up to a bunch of people that whose values and uh, philosophies about life, I'm just sorry, they're satanic. And they are controlled by satanic puppet masters who are preaching, do what thou wilt. You feel like a woman, go for it. Jay, and I talked about it with Dr. Boyce Watkins earlier in the show. Jason, if you feel like eating fast food seven times a day, go for it. And, and, and God tells us in the Bible, gluttony, lust, all this stuff. Those are death sentences. And so is, is, am I interpreting idolatry correctly? Well, I'm going to let uh, Damien jump in here in a second. <clears throat> I might quibble with you a little bit. Let me just say this. Uh, one of the most helpful things I've ever heard is that the human heart is an idol-making factory. Mm. Okay? And what is an idol? An idol is something that you make a god. So it's what is your god? So I guess if LeBron James or whatever you entertainer want. is that they, yeah most people are more it's more personal mm. it's that which you trust in and gives significance and meaning to your life and so for for people it can be money can be popularity sexual it partners be, it, it, it could be that that it's a dependency on what your sexual partner thinks or what other people think that are going to give you it's again what gives you security and ultimate value and guides your life. Mm -hmm. so, and the reason I said sexual partners is because I think some people think the more sexual partners they have, it says something good about them or makes them more value. Their confidence is derived from that. 
I've been in that mentality. I know that sin and that flawed thinking. Yeah. Damien. You taught that mentality. Man. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I, you, the, to me, the world is going to always be the world. Everybody that you just named. So, so it's kind of like, to me, what Tony was talking about was the difference in those who are gospel-centric, the church, you know, instead of kind of pointing your finger at the world, the world is going to continue to be the world. Because that's because Satan is the adversary is the what the ruler of the air. And so for me, it's, it's more so about are we as Christians, true disciples of Jesus Christ, are we submitting to who he is and he's being Lord and what we're part of and the fellowship that we are part of that is so enriching and so valuable that when people come and they look at what's going on in the fellowship of true believers, they see something that is is transcendent. They see something that is transformative, that that people who used to live like this in the world are now living God filled lives that are fulfilled and joyful. Marriages are restored. Children are, are, are living God in lives is is when you're living that out. That's the impact that begins to make an impact on the world, not me sitting in my seat as a as a minister saying the world is this the world the world is going to continue to be the world it's going to continue to slide into degradation and 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 worse places because it's always has since the beginning of time and so i look at how can i be a solution to the fellowship and to the people that that i'm connected with and continue to see god transform our lives instead of pointing the finger at what the world is doing because they're going to continue to do what they do anyway Mm, I needed to hear that. I want you to apply what you just said to someone like me, whose job it is to evaluate the world and to be a culture critic and to be a critic of athletes. It's my job career to explain the world. How, how, how do I, as a Christian, how do I, though my job, and my faith, how do they coexist? It's my job to interpret the world. Well, I think one thing, perspective is always key. And perspective meaning that that our time frame in this world is, is like an instant, right? I, I, I'm looking at the scripture, Isaiah 40, where it says, all people are like grass and are fault, um, and their faultlessness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of God endures forever. So all this stuff that we're talking about, it ain't going to last. I mean, you're being having to be a cultural critic to what's going on in the world, striving to speak truth to the world at the same time where they don't want to hear what you have to say. I mean, you're you're in a, in a in a tight spot, but I think the biggest thing is the the life that you live for those who because, you know, you're not living your life on TV all the time. It's kind of like who are the people who know you the most and the impact that you can make that way. Um, that's that's my perspective on it, Jason. Let me ask you the follow up, uh, Pastor Bobby. Uh, because one of, and one of the things I thought I heard from Tony Evans one, he said at some point at the end, this is not a time for spiritual punks. The world is in chaos. God is angry and sending all these yeah. things. And, and I heard it as a call to like, as Christians, 
we have to act differently. We have to, this is an unusual time and we're called upon to do things differently and want to, and I thought he was saying, you know, basically represent the kingdom properly. Let it, make it be more of a light unto the world. But I guess I came away from it. And Damon, you, you've shaken me up with your perspective. Is like, even in my job, I have to be more aggressive about trying to explain to people. And mostly I'm trying to talk to Christians or people that are interested in solutions for America. I'm trying to explain, no, here's the things we can do to improve this country that we all say we love and care about? Well, the first thing that uh, everybody has to do, and I think it's what you're trying to do, but tying it into your own idolatry, Jason, you've got to decide that the popularity of this show, that the success of the show, for example, that's secondary to you. And I believe it is. I'm seeing that in our conversations. But everything that you do has to be secondary to making Jesus your king of kings and Lord of Lords, like you wake up every day and your security is in him, your confidence is in him, and then you speak what he would want you to speak and do what he would want you to do. That is the only alternative to the idolatries of the world. I hope that that, and I'm glad, boy, that's great clarity, helps me understand, but, and I don't even want to get defensive. That's a great advice. I wouldn't even call it criticism, but every time I say the word Jesus on this show, yeah, I'm basically running off potential viewers. Yeah, and there's a reason why you can't say Jesus on ESPN, Fox Sports, or most of these networks. I know when you when you and I first <laughs> talked about the show, I was very surprised that you wanted to do. It. I'm so proud of you that you want to do it and that you're being vulnerable yourself about your own weaknesses, because we're all like that. Yeah. Like, we're talking about Jesus being the king of kings, okay? But that, that's a daily work for all of us, to really honor him as our king. All right, let's go to Tony Evans' most powerful points. He calls out the white and the black church, but let's hear what he says about the white church first. The white church has become too Republican. I knew it would get quiet, but let me try it again. The white church has become too Republican. You have wrapped too many, have wrapped our faith in the American flag. And when you go for a nationalistic faith, you have contaminated the gospel. Not because you're Republican, but because you've now made the nation subject to the wrong kingdom instead of the nation having to adjust to our king and his kingdom. Many of these problems that we're facing today would never have been the way they are if the white church had not taken the stand to be quiet when Jim Crow was happening, when, 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 when criminal leasing was happening, when, when all of these de deleterious realities, that has led to conflict that is still plaguing the Southern Baptist Convention today. And that ought not to be. There would be no national 
Baptist Convention if the Southern Baptist Convention was not a segregationist institution. It left the kingdom. But the black church has become idolatrous Jew. Let's all turn our eyes to Bobby. <laughs> Let's accuse him of everything. <laughs> Bobby, uh, a nationalistic faith contaminates the gospel. I think he's absolutely correct. Let's think about it. Uh, well, I'll tell you a conversation that I had with somebody a few weeks ago, and uh, they're a very right-wing political person. And I was trying to have this conversation with them. They, they're all on about the U.S. Constitution, how important the Constitution is. And I said, let me ask you a question, and I'd, if you could really be honest. When you get right down to it, which is more important, Jesus Christ or the U.S. Constitution? Mm. Mm. And he's, he was quiet. And uh, then he told to me, I guess it's been the U.S. Constitution. Mm. Ben, he said past tense. Yeah. You shook him up. Yeah. But what happens with a lot of these people, and we see it in our, we've got, in, in our church, we've got people on the right and people on the left. People who, uh, you know, are so concerned about the U.S. Constitution and their rights. And on the, on the other hand, it's like uh, people on the left who are saying, you know, you, you've got to get more with mask mandates and listen to the, well, of course, the CDC is now kind of confusing in what they're saying, but you got people on the right and the left, and it really is shaking it up in terms of who's really ultimately your authority. So, Bobby, the only thing I would say is I think that perhaps your friend thinks that without the U.S. Constitution, would he be allowed to have That's his That's exactly faith? what they think. Mm. And, and again... When America is going communist, Marxist, those are hostile to religion. Yeah. And so I can see why people get it intertwined, like, I got to protect the Constitution or I'm not going to be able to practice the religion. Yeah, I but Tony Evans is right, because what happens is you cannot have any idol ahead of King Jesus. You just can't. The U.S. Constitution, critical race, I don't care what it is. You can't and honor him because otherwise you've made whatever that thing is an idol. Mm -hmm. An idol is anything you put before God. Got you. All right, Damon, I'm going to come to you smoking hot here. We're going to listen to Tony Evans call out the black church and we'll turn our attentions to Damien. But let's listen to Tony first. Because what we have done is we have wrapped blackness in cultural identity. So we have often been more black than biblical. We have decided that our color can trump Christ. And so we will endorse a political party who will endorse evil, say nothing about the evil of abortion, the evil of homosexuality, the evil of uh, misuse of government because of a race issue. God doesn't ride the backs of donkeys or elephants. He sits as king of kings. He sits as lord of lords. This is a conversation 
I've been having with my family for the past few years is, is, is not so much about race as much as like, wow, Obama and the Democratic Party are above Jesus. And, and <laughs> conversations are, re- are littered with either Trump or Obama references seven days a week. It takes a break for the two hours you're in church on Sunday. And then the rest of the week, it's all Obama and Trump. The entire, and those are our idols. And, and so when Tony Evans said this, <laughs> I lost it. I was like, holy cow, I'm not wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, Damien, you know, help me out here. Writer, is his criticism on target? I mean, his criticism is totally on target on both, if you want to say both sides. It's, it's kind of like it's a reflection of what we would say the American church is. white, The white church or the black church is all considered the church. Um, I do appreciate him bringing in the historical references of uh, what went on with uh, Jim Crowism and, you know, kind of like the, the fleecing of, of sending black youth to, to, to prison, just all those type of t- type of nuances that, that have gone on in our country, um, because those are, are realities. You know, it's not made up. Uh, and at the same time, it's kind of like I go back to we as the church, white and black, we're saying that we have the solutions for these problems that we're trying to present to the, to the to the world, and until people are able to see it being lived out in real time, I think you know it's kind of like we're going to continue to talk about this year in and year out. Bottom line, it's never going to change. Only thing I would say, Damien, is that I believe, and I could be wrong, but I believe Christians are responsible for winning the Civil War, so Christians address slavery. And I believe Christians are responsible for the civil rights movement and winning laws that granted us American freedom and allow us, you and I, to go off to colleges on football scholarships and advance our lives. For me, in 1984, me and my father were living in a 400 square foot, one bedroom apartment in the hood. Nobody thinking about me other than a few football coaches. And you know, getting a football scholarship to Ball State totally changed my life. I, I, I got to credit America, and I got to credit Dr. King and the people from the church who, who really did, I believe, for a time, live out the kingdom and show that. And I think the people that fought in the Civil War and sung battle hymns that that acknowledge. I'm sacrificing my life. White dudes was out on the battlefield singing the Battle Hymn of the Republic saying, I'm sacrificing my life so these other people can live free. They were actually singing that song. And so I've seen Christians do incredible things to change this country in a better way. And, you know, we're not doing that right now. You know, I didn't even show the clip of Tony saying, you know, you got 1% of the population in control of all America. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. One percent of, and he didn't say exactly what he was talking about, but I know who he was. He's talking about the alphabet mafia, transgenders, and the LGBT, and all, all that. They're totally in control of America, and I guarantee you, Christians uh, that would raise their hand—that's about half of America, and we control nothing, and that's on us because we are failing. And Jim, I'm sorry, we, we probably got. Oh, we got a little time. We got two, three minutes. You got something, Jim? 
you apologize to me for, man? This well, one of the best uh, shows I've had. I'm, 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 you know, we not to put in a lot of work today. Anyway, you got anything, Jim? I, I would just say this about this whole, we're talking about what's going on with God. I, I think if I could use a football analogy, I think we could say that God is calling an audible. Mm. God done had to call an audible. We was taught in school that a noun was a person, place, or thing. But listening to uh, Tony Evans, he also said uh, it's a person, place, thing, or a thought. And you throw that thought in there, man. That, that you know, because thought is, we, we, we think people don't know our thoughts. You know, you, you, you were talking about uh, false idols and you were naming off. But, you know, one thing you didn't say, sometimes we put our families mm. as them false idols. Sometimes we put ourselves as them false idols. So, you know, um, and also he, he said that uh, we've wrapped our faith mm. in our flag. Yeah, you, you can't wrap your faith up in that flag. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, that, that, that's just what I took from all of this today. I'm sorry, man. Yeah. Excellent job, gentlemen. Uh, we got about 30 more seconds if somebody had something they just had to get off their chest. I was just about to say, not wrapping our faith in that flag. I think of it, we enjoy the freedoms that we have in our country. And the scripture says that the gates of Hades would never overcome God's kingdom. God's kingdom is worldwide. And so whether it's in the comforts of the freedoms that we have or existing in, you know, communist China, I don't, nobody wants that. God's kingdom will always prevail in the very end, no matter what's coming down the pipe. I, I, I'm, I'm not as confident, and I, and I say that just because if we fail to do our jobs as Christians, it's, I, I, I'm, I'm concerned. We got to go. I'm sorry, Bobby. But God always prevails. He does. Bottom line. He might be alone, though. It yeah, might just I mean, be him and the yeah, rest I'm, of us. I'm, I'm, I'm with Jason on, on this in the sense that even Jesus himself raises the question, when he returns... Will there be people with faith on earth? Mm. All right, thank you. That's, that's it, and that's all. We'll see you tomorrow.